threw that pigeon out and had seven peregrines come in to get my pigeon. This was when everybody was, you know, silent spring and all that stuff was going on. And uh, they not only, I believe they were all first-year birds, and they were trying to knock each other off the pigeon so they could get on it. So they had this little bar fight going on <laughs> at the side of the road. People are driving by, didn't see a thing. You know how that is. And, uh, and I'm waiting there, you know, sweating bullets. Hey, how's it going, everyone? And welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast. And I'm going to start off like I always do and give a quick shout out to the people that help make this podcast possible, being Bobby Auger Crafts out of Poland. If you haven't had a chance to order or check out any of his really awesome equipment yet, I highly recommend you do so. I'm sure you've heard me brag about it many times over now here on the podcast, but if you're in the market for any new anklets or hybrid jesses or even a custom glove, definitely hit them up. And after talking to him and meeting him at uh, the NAFA meet this past week, he agreed to run a special promotion through the end of December. Although it may still be a little bit of a wait before you get your equipment, if you order during the month of December after hearing this podcast, send them a message with your order details and also in your details there with the order, make sure that you put that you heard about this ad for free shipping through the podcast and through the month of December for any orders that are placed. If you mention that you heard this ad on the Falconry Toll podcast, he's actually going to throw in free shipping with your order. So even if you don't need anything right now, it might be a good idea to go ahead and order something else, um, you know, that gets you a little bit extra savings. Because, I mean, as some of you know, shipping from across the pond can kind of add up at times. So even if you don't need something right now or you can afford to wait on something, it's probably worth going ahead and putting in an order through the month of December after you hear this podcast and, and hear about this promo because, like I said, you'll save yourself a little bit extra money. So hit him up, get his contact info from our website at falconretold.com or send him a message at Goshawk on Instagram. And like I said, be sure to mention this promo here on the podcast that you heard it so you get some free shipping through the month of December. And I also have to give a quick thank you to Seth Roy of North Mountain Goshawks. If any of you are in the market for a new hunting partner for next season, especially if it might be a parent rear goshawk, definitely hit him up. And he produces some really nice game hawks. So if you get on the list and put in an order with him, I'm sure you won't regret your choice. Definitely tell him that we sent you. He, uh, like I said, produces some really nice birds. I've gotten a chance to see some of them fly and not a single person that I know that has had one of his birds has been disappointed. So I'm sure you won't be either. So hit them up, tell them we sent you fill out that form on northmountaingossocks.com or send them a message on Facebook either way. And I'm sure you'll be happy with your choice. Okay. Well, this episode was recorded back in the summer while I was visiting Seth Roy along with some of the guys from New Jersey. And uh, this was kind of recorded in between doing some of the docs and episodes and things like that but why was it Seth's he also had some other falconers over including our guest for this episode Galen Garish and this episode was really cool to do because Galen is another one of the falconers that comes from the much older generation that was practicing falconry before there was lots of rules and regulations and before falconry was 
practiced more prevalently across the country and stuff. So he has a really cool perspective on things. And, you know, he also talks a lot about some of his early practices and equipment making and hood making and different things like that. And like I said, just a really fascinating guy to talk to. So I'm sure you all will enjoy this episode. And we're just going to jump right into this episode here with Galen Garish. So here we go. Go back to when I got into falconry. There was nobody in falconry then. Yeah. Just some of the old, you know, the those few names that you heard, that was them. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, maybe a couple of young kids tagging along to try to learn the sport. And, but uh, the falconers were few and far between back then. I think when I joined the NAFA, I guess I was a charter member of that. It was like, I think I was member 103. Oh, really? Yeah. Like yeah. That. So you were in it from the from the early days. and From the beginning, yes. And so yeah. I'm assuming then you're one of these Falconers, too, that were kind of, that started before a lot of the rules and regs and everything. Oh, way came, before. Yeah, way before all way that. Way before, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, When I lived in Florida, um, they had a director of what they called um, the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. It's a long name, but it included, you know, pretty everything except saltwater fishing. But anyway, the uh, director of that, um, Earl Fry, was a falconer. And that made it good. So he had a little permit system of his own and uh, nothing fancy. It was just um, almost word of mouth, you know, is this fella capable of being a falconer or not? And you would get a, a little permit for... So he always limited people to two peregrines. He didn't <laughs> limit you to anything else, but he limited you to two peregrines. <laughs> so That's funny. It goes, goes way back. So you lived in Florida earlier on then, before you lived in, in this area in Pennsylvania? Then? Yeah, yeah. I was born in New Jersey. Okay. And I actually got interested in falconry in New Jersey. This was about 1957. And uh, I remember looking for hawk nests then. Now, whether, you know, you call that part of falconry or not, I don't know. But I think I had, we moved to Florida then in in 57, 58. Mm -hmm. And I uh, started up falconry down there. And uh, in, in Florida in the winter... Every kestrel in North America ends up in Florida, in the in the Florida Peninsula. There's like one on every other telephone pole. And uh, so lots of good beginner birds. <laughs> and uh, I had my first kestrel in 1960. And um, it was actually a bird that I lost and recovered. <laughs> so... Um, had that bird for quite a while, and I uh, there were just so many kestrels. Boy, I really cut my teeth on on uh, American kestrels. They're a great bird. They are. They're still to this a day my favorite fun. bird. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have. Um, it was so hot. It's, this was um, um, south southeast Florida, and it was so hot that there were very few nesting raptors. 
just a very few red tails, a lot more uh, red-shouldered hawks. Um, but there wasn't too much to to work with back then. Mm-hmm. You had to wait for migration, and when migration hit, it was a whole new ball game. And it was a good supply of birds, and uh, I was never without a bird. Always, mm-hmm. always had a bird. I think I had my first peregrine in '63 or '64. Is it? A, a, tundra peregrine and uh fell in love with them as soon as i flew that first bird i saw the essence of falconry i saw why falconry had uh, developed the way it had over the centuries and i i i contribute that to the to the peregrine peregrines just fall right into place and what you're trying to get done in falconry. So I'm a big peregrine man. Still Uh, to this day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much predominantly what you're still flying to this day then? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I just just quit flying birds. Uh, um, I can still catch them, I can still train them, but I can't keep up with them. My knees are just just shot from all those years of <laughs> pounding the pastures. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. Well, going back to Florida then though, I mean, whenever you were had all these dealings with, with kestrels in Florida, I mean, what were you what were you hunting with them? What what kind of falconry were you doing with, with the kestrels then when you started out? Uh anything they would catch. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, anything from a grasshopper to a mouse to a dicky bird. Um, you know, whatever whatever presented itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one bird I had, I, I had flying free in three days and that was a wonderful bird. That one was, um, uh, would chase everything, but kestrels being, you know, a little on the, uh, you know, kestrels aren't Merlins. They're, uh, uh, they're a little tougher to get going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a lot of fun with with that 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 breed. Uh, we didn't get uh, too many exhibitors down there. I wasn't really wasn't into exhibitors at first. I was into long wings, and um, uh, I flew them right up until the federal government said you can't do it anymore, <laughs> which was kind of a crazy thing because we were seeing peregrines. Coming down the Florida coast, I mean, it was, it was like, you know, flies around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I th- I think there's a lot of varying, you know, just viewpoints on a lot of that too. I mean, you mentioned that you saw a ton of them. You didn't really see like a decrease, and I, I'm sure that mm-hmm. it was kind of dependent on different like circumstances in different areas and stuff, but. I know there's a lot of guys that have a kind of the opinion that it wasn't like peregrines as a whole, but it was more just the particular anatom subspecies and, yeah. and so on and so forth. I mean, I definitely wasn't around at that point in time. I just know what a lot of different guys have, have mm-hmm. said. And I mean, so, it, so you pretty much from what you saw then, there really wasn't, you know, a shortage that, that you saw. The, in the-, the tundra birds were still reproducing and, Coming down when I caught my first peregrine, I had seven peregrines trying to get my pigeon. <laughs> so that that was my start with the peregrine, so mm-hmm. you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But you're right, the anatom peregrine is the one that really took the hit. 
Mm-hmm. And um, there were a lot of things going against the Anatom Peregrine. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, when they have a nice cliff face over a river, like we have in Pennsylvania, and then they put a scenic overlook over the thing. Peregrines don't put up with that. Mm-hmm. They don't care if a train is going past them underneath, but they won't put up with things above them. They, so a lot of our um, a lot of our cliffs in Pennsylvania got deserted. They just left and didn't come back. There was a time when Jim Rice and them were actually checking railroad cuts. There were so many peregrines around. They were checking railroad cuts to see if there were nesting on them. You know where they had. A man-made cliff face, <laughs> not too big either. <laughs> huh. So, um, but there they were just a ton of things. And, of course, that was um, just before I got in on all this, egg collecting had been a big thing. Um, the early 1900s, the egg collectors just loved peregrine eggs. They thought they were the greatest thing in the world. Hmm. Well, falconers wanted... Um, Peregrine ISs. They didn't want peregrine eggs. Right. So there was this battle going on where the falconers would climb down when there were eggs in the eyrie and mark them up with India ink. No magic markers back then. It was all India ink if you want something that really hold. And uh, so that they wouldn't be uh, um, attractive to egg collectors. So then the egg collectors would climb down and throw those eggs out of the nest to see if the birds would recycle. And now, isn't this a, a, a scenario to, you know, um, it was so the, the anatom peregrine everywhere took a hit. I don't think they got wiped out. I had an anatom peregrine um, back in, uh, oh, I guess, right around 1970. And uh, obviously, uh, an anatom peregrine, big, beautiful, dark birds, just, uh, and um, so I think there were a few around, but all the sites where they were obviously nesting, you know, the most obvious places, they were gone. People were just, um, just giving them too much, too much grief. Hmm. They're... Uh, um, they just would not leave them alone. And boy, if you want to mess up a wildlife population, mess it up during its breeding cycle. That's, that's when you can really do some damage. That's when you need to leave them alone. Yeah. And coming from Florida where I was trapping migrant hawks, I didn't get into this IS thing. So I've, I've always been a passage man. I like, uh, I like passage birds. I like, uh, you know, they're, they're beyond the stupidity of an ias, but they're not so cocksure of themselves as a haggard. They're in that in-between thing where they're willing to bend a little <laughs> to get along with the falconer. Sure. So I've always, I've always had passage birds. Uh, even when I had to get iases, I'd wait till they left the nest and, and trap them then. They're pretty easy to trap then, actually, if, if you're paying attention. But uh, rather than climbing up and disturbing a nest and getting a a bird that has no idea <laughs> what to do next, um, 
about as close as I came to taking Iases was sorehawk. I call them sorehawks. Mm-hmm. Out of the nest, but haven't migrated yet. That in-between time lasts about, you know, four to six weeks. Sure. So. Yeah, and as far as, you know, whenever you were young and getting into this, and, I mean, so about, I'm, I'm sorry, how old were you again whenever you first kind of took an interest into all this? I think I was 14. 14. And what was the thing then that, that kind of got you interested in it? Like, how did you find out about it? And uh, every once in a while, you would see a magazine article on it. And unfortunately, they were in uh, what we used to call men's magazines, uh, you know, um, uh, great white hunter type magazines. And so they'd always dramatize it. So what you were reading was all the, you know, all, all the real flashy stuff. But um, I thought to myself, now, my dad was not a hunter. I wasn't a hunter. I didn't have a gun. My dad didn't have any guns. This came out of the blue. But I thought, you know, what a, what a great way to hunt where the game has a fair chance. You don't leave any cripples behind. And you're dealing, you're, 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 you're watching predation, uh, you know, in, in the rawest sense of the word, uh, which is mostly what nature is all about, eat and be eaten. So I thought this is a great, great thing to get into to um uh you know to, to to train a hawk and and work with it while it was hunting and so i mean whenever you were messing with all these kestrels and stuff then you were still you know a, a teenager and <laughs> and uh i mean so what at, at what point then was it that you ended up moving and relocating from from florida then well i went to uh, college out west okay and uh, that was an entirely different um, way of doing things in in the falconry world. I actually <laughs> went out, I went out to, uh, I went out to Utah, and went to Utah State University for uh, forestry and wildlife. Okay, yeah. And um, we had seven falconers that roomed together. Sometimes that was a good thing. Sometimes it was not such a good thing. <laughs> I can imagine. I can Especially imagine. in those days, uh, falconers were a lot more cutthroat with each other than they, they are now. Um, the way information has become much more available now, there's not the need to be cutthroat. But back then, um, it, it could get pretty heated sometimes. <laughs> So, uh, so that, so I went out West. Now that was entirely different down in Florida. Um, long wings, they, they practically lived on air. <laughs> they didn't need anything, you know, for body heat. Northern Utah winters were another story. And at that time, um, the peregrine had been eliminated as a, um, you know, a potential species we could use. Um, so it was prairie falcons. Mm-hmm. Well, there they were, lots of prairie falcons around. And um, I really got a, 
Uh, I really got an education from Prairie Falcons. Eh? They aren't <laughs> peregrines. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> Those mm. sweet, lovable peregrines that always do the right thing they were a lot different than than uh, Prairie Falcons that didn't care whether you lived or died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so you were sticking to to the passage still, and you yes. you, you weren't really imprinting the prairies. You're just sticking to the passage. Yeah. No, we, we, for the fun of it, we'd go out and and find their eyries on you know the, the little cliffs. But um, I think only once did I take an Ias Prairie. Uh, so I, I I'd go out and trap you know the passage birds, mm-hmm. and that was that was a lot of fun. That might have been more fun than hunting with them, <laughs> 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 because they they hadn't. They hadn't um, wound their magic on you, um, you know, when you were just trapping them. But uh, they were tough customers. Yeah, they can be. And, yeah, I mean, the only experience that I have with the, with the prairie is the one male that I, or the one tiercel that I tried imprinting, um, you know, a handful of years ago. And, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard from so many people that, of course, you know, the passage birds can be, you know, quite the challenge. You know, they got an attitude and <laughs> and I can totally see it. I mean, the male imprint that I had, he was he was pretty cool. Um, but of course, he was an imprint. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what were you uh, I mean, what were you trying to hunt with them out there? Pheasants. Pheasant. I wasn't trying. I was doing great. Yeah. This was back in the time that you were wading through pheasants <laughs> in northern Utah. I mean, when I was out there, it was South Dakota had nothing on northern Utah as far as pheasants go. You could hunt them, you know. Uh, they, you you just knew that if you jumped in your car and drove for 15, 20 minutes, you were going to be into pheasant. Hmm. That's one of the hardest things for me in and uh, having a lot of these conversations and especially with guys that have been in it for as long as you have, you know, that, that is one of the hardest things to hear is to hear about just how things used to be with the amount of land available, the amount of game available. And uh, yeah, it makes, it makes me kind of envious. You know, I'm sure it Mm -hmm. makes a lot of current generation Falconers envious just with how much game and, and land there was available. A lot of Falconers are going to smaller Hawks. Mm hmm. I think they call it micro falconry mm-hmm, yeah. or something mm-hmm, now, sure. um, mm-hmm. just because it's more compressed. The whole thing—you don't need as much land. You don't. You don't need big um, game animals and birds to to hunt. You can hunt small stuff all all day long. But yes, back then, um, well, Pennsylvania had a really robust uh, pheasant population just before I got here, and. Um, it's funny about those pheasants, or, or really any population. You you dump them in a in a habitat, and at first they have no predators. The predators aren't wise to them; they don't know they're good to eat, and they flourish. But then that changes and goes the other way, just like all wildlife. It it goes up and down, and up and down, and up and down. But the pheasants. The pheasants in Pennsylvania are wild pheasants. You know, stock, what stock that became wild are a thing of the past. In Utah, it's a thing of the past. 
I guess they're hanging in there in the Dakotas. Um, but they're, um, that was just a heyday for, I mean, things just, you know, clicked. And uh, you just had to know enough to capitalize on it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've, I've heard so many stories, you know, from guys and from all these different states that just talked about the, uh, the quote-unquote glory days, you know, mm. and just how much everything ranging from pheasants to in some places like prairie chickens, you know, all these different, especially feathered game where they just used to be so plentiful. Hell, even ducks, you know, the amount of places where they could sage hunt ducks. Grouse. You know? Yeah, well, yeah, especially sage-grouse too. And... Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, times are what they are now. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of there's a lot more people now that are that are adopting the the micro falconry because, well, I mean, there's only a hundred zillion starlings and, and mm-hmm. house sparrows around. There's they're never going away. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I I you drop a nuclear bomb on most parts and most places they're going to survive along with turtles and cockroaches probably <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. um yeah i mean i don't know man you know it's 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 rough i mean it is sad i'm i mean i'm sure from your perspective and, and guys that are in kind of like your position i know you're not really super active in falconry anymore but i'm sure it's got to be tough you know over time seeing all these different changes and seeing just the, definitely you know i mean talk a little bit about that i mean over the years i mean i i'm sure that it's been tough for you you know like just seeing this decline yep uh and there's uh i go back to the days where if there wasn't a specific regulation protecting an animal you could hunt it and nowadays, it's like everything's protected, and they pick out a couple of things that, you know, they let you hunt. So it, it was a smorgasbord before as compared to now. I used to used to do a lot of um, heron hawking with my peregrines. And, um, you know, you'd occasionally catch, a, you know, a limpkin or a golden slippers or something like that. But um, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. Uh, mostly hunting um, um, cattle egrets. Did catch a great blue heron once, <laughs> which almost killed me. <laughs> and stab you through the heart almost? Yeah, oh, no, it was aiming for my eyeballs. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I used to do a lot of that. But um, uh, back then, the, the, uh, um, the game laws just weren't so stringent as they are now. Um, you really have to work harder at finding uh, a, a continuing supply of game for your hawk, unless you're going to turn your hawk into a pet or something. You, you, it, it's hard work anymore. Didn't, it didn't used to be. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I, I know it would be very tough for me to live through that. And then, well, I mean, even now. I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience now. I mean, I, I got into this in like 2015. And I mean, even since then, I mentioned this before. I, I mean, every season, it seems like we lose at least one, maybe two really decent hunting spots. Fields that were just loaded with rabbits or whatever. Now they're, uh, you know, uh, a you know, suburb, uh, you know, freaking housing complex, whatever, the apartment complex, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sad to see. I mean, I, I 
it's going to be tough thinking about how the next handful of decades are going to go. I mean, assuming I live that long, of course, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be, I, I hate thinking about that. Well, I was lucky because in Florida, I had um, lots of hunting grounds. Um, everybody wanted to live on the beach <laughs> and on the coast. <laughs> yeah. So right in from that were mostly orange groves. And in from that towards Lake Okeechobee was um, cattle ranching. Mm-hmm. And essentially just open land as far as you can see. Sometimes not a tree in sight. And uh, and then also um, in Utah, uh, in northern Utah, there was, well, so much of, of Utah is federal land anyway. Um, but um, you just, the, the big boom hadn't hit yet as far as, you know, used to be fields and now it's houses. Mm-hmm. But when I came to Pennsylvania, um, it I, I could see it. It you know the, the crowded northeast is a good way to describe Pennsylvania and, and New York and New Jersey. It's it's really it, it's really quite crowded compared to other parts of the the country. So um, coming up here, it was a lot more difficult to keep everything going, finding hunting grounds. And uh, birds are plentiful enough, but, uh, you know, you could always get birds. I I had, like I say, I, I'm a passage man, and um, I would get a new passage bird every year. That's just the way I did it. I had even dates when I would release birds if I, you know, had them that long. But um, all this goes back to pre-telemetry days. There was no telemetry for <laughs> yeah, you know, and you you hunted you hunted peregrines a lot different than they do now. Seth has one of these um, GPS, yeah, tracks. right, yeah. I have GPS too. No, it's <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's, I, that's wonderful. But try it without any of that stuff. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. I trust was, me. I yeah. I mean, I hear I hear all the stories. Like, well, I mean. When we flew Falcons, all we had back in the day was like a bell, you yeah, know, and, and uh, no, no, thank you. I mean, once you have it, it's it's almost an indispensable tool. And, you know, I'm even, I mean, talking to guys like yourself when, that, that we're talking about, even whenever just traditional beeping telemetry was like revolutionary. I mean, I, I still don't even think I would want to fly a, a bigger long wing, even just normal standard, you know, beep telemetry. I mean, once you got the GPS, especially with the long wing, man, it's it's a night and day difference. But mm-hmm. but I'm sure, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there, your experiences with some of these peregrines and and things, I mean, like, yeah, you're probably, <laughs> you're probably flying a new bird every year, kind of just right. by default anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. There, there wasn't that that uh, feeling, oh, I want to yeah. keep this bird forever. Yeah, bye-bye. But I, I got that, I get the old, you know, beepers, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of telemetry. And, but I'll tell you the funny thing, I had flown birds for so long that, I see, I got telemetry when I came to Pennsylvania, and and. Half the time, I'd forget to take the telemetry along. <laughs> I just it just wasn't part of the repertoire, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and I was so used to flying birds a certain way that 
you know, worst case scenarios weren't likely to happen. That um, that that was just part of it at the, at the time. Yeah. But now I never got into this um, mapping uh, type telemetry. Yeah. Um, I suppose. Um, you know, I never. I, I had jur peregrines, but I never had a jur falcon. And I always wanted a Scottish peregrine. Never had one of them. Mm-hmm. A few other birds like that. Maybe if I had gotten birds like that, I, I might have said, "Boy, I better get this mapping thing for it." Well, yeah. I mean, if I mean, if you're just trapping passage birds each year, and theoretically, you're not having to sink thousands of dollars into each new bird that you're getting yes there's an extra little incentive to make sure that you can <laughs> yeah 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 well i'm sure flying them that way though i mean i'm sure you probably you know the, the ones that you didn't automatically by default have to turn back to the wild i mean i'm sure you probably you know there's it's so easy to lose a long wing that way mm-hmm. yeah i mean were you a big fan then of, of the old old style of how to track track birds then and uh you know, just the the rudimentary stuff. Yeah, and watching. Yeah, that yeah, pretty much how you track your birds. Yeah, and and uh, you just kept a, a closer handle on them. Mm-hmm. You just nowadays, geez, guys are letting their birds fly out to dot in the sky and still going. <laughs> to us, that was a lost bird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, um, uh, uh, we, you know, we did that and. Um, there, there were just a lot of things you did differently so that you could hang on to your bird. But I didn't worry about it. If, you know, if I, if I hadn't lost my peregrine or Merlin by the 1st of April, they were gone. I cut them loose. Um, the uh, uh, goshawks, 1st of March, that was the date. And that put them back in the breeding cycle and, part of falconry should be getting a bird through you know to where it can you know be a, a part of part of uh, nature again um sharp shin hawks january 1st <laughs> believe it or not you just don't want to have a um a passage except a passage sharpie out overnight in a Pennsylvania winter. That's no. that, that's that's not going to happen there. So no. I used to uh, I used to um, trap them. I haven't had a sharpie for a while, but um, uh, I used to trap them in September and um, fly them until first of January or the first break in the weather after after the first of the year because uh, they just. They just didn't do well in winter. A lot of guys would um, use lights and switch them over to molting in the winter and and flying in the yeah, summer. Reverse molt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, I guess they do it. I never did it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I always thought, eh, you know, I don't want to be catching mamas with a clutch of little babies. You know, <laughs> so. Well, I mean, unless you're you're hunting starlings and, and house sparrows. Well, yeah. But when they're catching everything in sight, which Sharpies do. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, most exhibitors in general. Yeah, I mean, there's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't care what it is. They're going to they're gonna try and catch it for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome, though. I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty, uh, 
pretty wide breadth of especially like you know long wing experience in your in your early days and well and the, the 1980s i concentrated on exhibitors okay um i had my last peregrine for seven years because i knew it was the last one so i didn't turn that one loose mm-hmm. um eventually that peregrine was killed by a red tail Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just don't even it's, like to think of that. It's but, pretty common, though. Yeah. But uh, in the 80s, I um, concentrated on exhibitors, of which there are plenty in Pennsylvania. Uh, mm. Sharpshins. This this state is a stronghold for sharpshins. Yeah. So it was by the 80s then that you made your move to Pennsylvania then? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yes. All right. And um, uh, there were goshawks. A lot more then than there are now. Um, I, I, they've got to come up with a goshawk that doesn't raise the roof when you get near their nest. If they just shut up, <laughs> there'd be a lot more goshawks around. Because I chased many a goshawk nest where somebody got to it first and, you know, blew them to kingdom come. Yeah, it became a lot more common once they did uh, started spring turkey hunting in Pennsylvania, and uh, and then of course they decided to um, restock fishers in Pennsylvania because they said there was too many porcupines and why they thought fishers would limit themselves to porcupines I don't know but um, that was <laughs> tough. That was tough on uh, goshawks, but also tough on uh, great horned owls, which in turn are tough on goshawks. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there was a nice supply of uh, exhibitors in Pennsylvania uh, back in the eighties, and I just capitalized on it. I, I would um, trap as early as I can, but I had to go into winter trapping. You know, a lot of times to get the kind of bird I was looking for. And uh, so that that was my exhibitor experience, about 10 years there. With, and then just occasionally after that. And, I mean, was it a big adjustment for you? Because, you know, as, as everybody in falconry knows, I mean, the difference in, mm-hmm. in those species are, are like night and day. Oh, yeah. I mean, what was, what was that like for you? Well, it's a different kind of falconry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more up-close and personal falconry. Um, you know, there's the bird on your fist, not up in the sky and, uh, like a long wing would be. And, um, uh, it was, it was more, uh, like flash hunting. Um, a lot of it, a lot of the success you had was, just a flash, and there it is, and, and you're done. Yep. There, you, didn't, you didn't traipse around looking for duck ponds and, and setting everything up and all that uh, like you would with a long wing. But um, uh, the exhibitors was just just more up close and personal. I enjoyed it. I, I like I like exhibitors. Not as much as my long wings, but uh, I, I do like exhibitors. Yeah. Well, and... So whenever you you were making that that transition then I mean what what other kind of challenges did you have whenever you were trying to 
to mold and, and learn like a completely new species, like going from, you know, long wings to short wings. I mean, what kind of issues did you run into with that and with the, the change of the mindset and how to approach those birds as opposed to, you know, the, the peregrines and stuff? Well, I, um, by that time I had built up a pretty extensive falconry library and it was a working library. It, they weren't just stuck in the bookcase to look pretty. <laughs> I was using them. Um, I learned a lot from Frank Beebe. Uh, he wasn't everybody's friend, but um, I, I had met him and, and talked to him. And, and uh, man had a lot of insights on falcons and exhibitors. Uh, and I pretty much used, you know, what he told me to you know, get the ball rolling on, on these hawks. But there were other really good falconers, too. Um, a lot of them, like you say, they, they specialize in exhibitors or they specialize in long wings. And then you see these all-rounders sometimes that, uh, you know, have have tried it all. Mm-hmm. So um, so I I just plowed right ahead, full speed ahead, right right into it. And... and uh, Really feel lucky that I I had as much success as I did doing that, um, because I I see some guys struggle if they don't really understand the psychology uh, of a hawk, what's going on between his ears. It can be a tough road to hoe. It can be tough. That um, they have. Uh, I see where. Some fellas who would be wonderful falconers if if they could just get the hang of it on what their hawk's trying to do. Talking to some other guys before, I mean, there's some people that, that have some more of a textbook or tunnel vision type approach to, you know, some of these different birds. And I really think that that kind of hinders people sometimes They kind of get in, your, in their own head too much with certain things and, and just don't take a step back and, and think about, you know, things from that other point of view that they need to. But yeah, I mean, and every species isn't for everybody too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, some people are just, their personalities fit certain species more than others. At least that's my personal belief anyway. But down in Florida, every, every decent hummock has a red shoulder family in it. They're <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. And that's where I cut my teeth on Cooper's hawks. <laughs> Those darn uh, red shoulders. They've got the attitude and and uh, a lot of the tricks that um, Cooper's hawks pull, and there again, uh, you know, it's no big deal to get a nice um, red-shouldered hawk, but to trap a passage bird or that, you know, uh, a sore hawk is um, they're they're tough customers, just like a just like a Cooper's hawk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard they're a little bit more excipitrine and and they uh, are yep. and demeanor and, and stuff than than a than a beautyo but mm-hmm. well i i wanted to talk to you some too about some of the different aspects of falconry that i know that you kind of somewhat became i don't know about known for per se but like some of the different aspects that that you kind of that other people may know you for which some of our mutual friends were talking about how you know you're really good at hood making and equipment making. And I mean, what other, some of these aspects of falconry did you become really passionate about then 
and you know other than just the the hawks or falcons themselves mm-hmm. i mean okay. did, you, did you did you ever get into certain aspects of equipment making or anything that was sure yeah um back when i started falconry you essentially made your own equipment mm-hmm. or you didn't have equipment that's about what it boiled down to so um there was no such thing as getting out a credit card and you know buying equipment somewhere so uh, the whole schmeal, everything, uh, everything you would use, all the furniture and falconry, you had to make yourself. Well, that was fine. I was kind of talented in crafts and so forth. So I bailed right into that. And um, one of the things that I did was um, I'm a firm believer that every trained hawk should have a hood. Um, not everyone feels that way, but that's okay. Uh, but to me, every new hawk needed a new hood that fit them, you know, almost custom made. And, uh, going through passage birds, that meant a lot of hoods. <laughs> so, um, so I started making hoods and so forth and, and, the little bit that you would talk to fellas on the falconry grapevine, that's all it was back then, just a falconry grapevine. Um, liked my equipment, and I started up a mail-order business with falconry equipment. I called it the Falconhurst after the Swiss Family Robinson thing. Put out a catalog. Thing took off way more than I wanted it to. Walt Disney was one of my customers, all kinds of fish and game departments. Nobody knew where to get equipment. And, you know, here was this guy making equipment, putting out a catalog. Um, So I started doing that, and that just builds up your expertise in making this. Keeps you looking out for new and different things that, you know, ways of, of making the equipment. And uh, I did that for, oh, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 years. I'm not sure. And I started to think, wait a minute, I'm, I have a family here. <laughs> and I'm up till two in the morning making hoods for a stranger. <laughs> and I thought, this isn't, this isn't what I had in mind. <laughs> and uh, um, it, it, my, first think, my first thought was, I can help other falconers have good equipment for their birds. That was my original thought. But then it, the idea kind of creeped in. I'm making equipment for people I don't even know. And for all I know, they're the lousiest falconer in the world. They should not even have a hawk. And yet I'm supplying them equipment. So that that thing kind of got me you know, worried about it. And, and I eventually quit doing that. But I kept I kept up making a, a new hood for every bird, and I would make hoods for people I knew, or if somebody out of the blue said, "Hey, I hear you make good hoods. Can you make a hood for me?" And I'd make hoods that way. And uh, um, boy, I'll tell you, the number of hoods I made is up into four digits. A lot of hoods. <laughs> uh, I had. Um, 
I finally, um, I guess you're familiar with the Slaper Cannon. Mm. No? Mm. Guy in England made a formula, and uh, you take one measurement off the hawk, and you put it into this formula, and you end up with a hood pattern. And it, it was a bugger. It was really complicated. I said, it doesn't have to be this complicated. And I made up my own hood formula. And I got it down to 12 steps. And uh, I actually published that in Hawk Chalk in uh, 1999, I think it was. Um, I had um, about five different hood patterns. I had a, uh, formulas, I mean, not patterns, but formulas. Had one for Arab hoods. Um, uh, the, the one that I figured everyone would do best at would be um, Anglo-Indian hoods. And uh, I had some dandies for that. People still use, uh, amazing the number of people that use those hoods. And um, so that, that, that was kind of a big thing in falconry for me. And uh, there, because I was making it public in hawk chalk, I felt like I was more presenting it to the people who, you know, it ought to be presented to. So... Um, I noticed, uh, oh, way back, I think it was in the 1950s, Bob McCollum had uh, made a spring wire brace. And, um, you know, the braces they put on hawks, they're, they're, they're unique, they're clever, and they can be a, a real pain, too. And uh, he made a spring wire closure. But it, it was very basic. And then Frank Beebe made one. And he went overboard and made it way too complicated. And so I said, well, we can do better than that. And uh, I made up a, a um, pattern for a spring wire brace to put on the back of these hoods. Um, so it, it's scissor action. Um, some people in the early days called them safety pin braces. Um, but anyway... Uh, I did that, and that worked like a dream. I actually started on that in the 70s, and I published it in Hawk Chalk in about the year 2000. So I gave it a real test. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of fellows that like those too because the uh, um, hood just pops on and, and closes. And uh, same for getting them off. It's not all this fiddling and putting your your head up next to the hawk, you know. And it's a new hawk, and he flips the hood off, and there you are, like like the full moon right next to him. You know, none of that stuff's going. It's all all out here. You know? um, so every everybody liked that. I had some eagle guys that liked them too because. Uh, otherwise, they have a heck of a time dropping the bird down far enough to get up to pull the braces. Mm -hmm. This, you don't do that. It's all out on the hand. So that that was something that I did a lot of equipment making. And for a while, it was, it was commercial for just a short while. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was just for myself and, you know, put them on the raffle table at the meet and things like that. Yeah. Well, and you said that, so, I mean, you kind of just casually brushed over like, you know, Walt Disney and some guys like that being customer. I mean, mm -hmm. I have to know what they ordered. 
Like what 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 was what was some of the stuff that they got? Well, everything. It was a complete catalog. Mm-hmm. I had every night. I had hoods, jesses, uh, leashes. So the, the guy, for, guys yeah. like him ordered a little bit of everything then. Yeah, yeah. For for what exactly? I mean, what what size? You know, I, what type of bird? And well, I don't know what they were eventually going to use it for, mm-hmm. but um, I assume in some of their films. They they wanted it for you know that's a whenever I would watch one of those movies I see if it was one of my hoods. <laughs> yeah but um uh the uh, uh and and the and the other big thing was quite a quite a number of um, fish game departments needed some kind of raptor handling system mm-hmm. and they needed the equipment for that. So out of all the types of equipment that you made, I mean, what I mean, did were hoods the the thing that you got the most enjoyment out of? Or I mean, did you also you I mean, I'm assuming you made probably gloves and all the other stuff too, right? And that's what you said. I mean, was was hoods what you got the most satisfaction out of? Or certainly made more hoods than anything else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is okay. That's all right because, like I say, I I believe a trained hawk should have a hood. Yeah. Uh, they're just so darn useful. Mm-hmm. craziest thing in the world take take this solitary bird in the wild that you know stays away from humans next thing he's on the fist and you have a leather cap on his head to blindfold him mm-hmm. what you know what what a difference uh the, the psychology behind it is just amazing yeah i mean i um i don't know some people call it um an addiction or a problem or even a fetish. I call it practical. I, <laughs> I like having a, a lot of hoods and I have a, a quite a few hoods. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you might have to come out of retirement and, uh, and end up making me one. Um, I'm not going to obligate you, but I'm going to strongly hint and encourage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I would love to, to have one if it's, uh, if you still got it in the toolbox enough to, to make one for, uh-huh. For little old me over in Indiana, but uh, I think there's one out at the archives. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure. And, I mean, I've I've been to the and, archives a couple times, and and I'm and yeah. uh, I tell you what was really deep. Um, the fellow who runs the falconry museum at Volksensward, Holland, wanted one of my hoods, hmm. and a, a fellow was going over that way and took took a hood to him. So that's sitting somewhere in a glass case, I guess. Okay. Well, I mean, if they've got one, then I have to have one too. Oh, then okay. Well, yeah. that settles it. That's, yeah. That. Well, I mean, it should. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm just as important as those guys. Why, sure, absolutely. Yeah. No, the the archives are great, man. I uh, yeah. and I would love. I, I'm I'm aware of the museum that that you just mentioned. You know, and oh, I, there's different places that I've been to in Europe, and each time it's not it's so tempting to kind of just casually, you know, just force an elbow through the, through the display glass, you know, and then reach in and, and, you know, just fill your, you know, bag or whatever with, with some of this vintage stuff. I was in, um, Oh, gosh, it was a handful of years ago. I went through, uh, the Hofburg, the Imperial palace in, in Austria. And, uh, they have a, a music equipment museum and an arms and armory museum both right next to each other mm-hmm. as two of my, I was totally nerding out as two of my favorite things. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, man, like I was going through the arms and arm, you know, it's like room after room, after room, after room, just, you know, different sets of armor, swords, all this stuff. And then at the very end of it, they had a, a small falconry 
exhibit. They had some, um, I don't even know how old they had to have been probably like hundreds of years old, but they had a, you know, lures and some hoods and stuff. And I was just like, mm, is it worth, is it worth prison? Yeah. It, you know, <laughs> just, just trying to think about, man, like, could I get out of here quick enough? <laughs> <laughs> if only uh, those feathers would stay in good oh. shape on those old hoods. Oh that, man, yeah. I mean, so you I, could see the beauty of those things for sure. I mean, my luck, I'd break the glass and then they would just disintegrate. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. yeah, no, I'd be my luck. But, but I've yeah. made many many hoods with feather plumes. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've got. I just went through them. I think I've got sixteen different bags of feathers of all different colors. You know, mostly hackles. But also some, you know, guinea fowl feathers. That just, uh, I, I really like the looks of feathers. Uh, they're, they're not a practical, but they're, they're certainly historical. Yeah, I mean, those are the type of hoods that you just have to put in, like one of those, like, um, I don't know, almost kind of <laughs> like a glass, you know, dome glass, like just display mini cases and just sit in there and you just, you know, admire. Because, yeah. I mean. The practicality of having those nice, like you were describing, like the pheasant feathers or whatever, like the decorative feathers on top mm -hmm. and stuff, man. It's just like, yeah. I don't want like chick guts and everything else to get on this thing, man. I just yeah. want to, I just yeah. want to be able to appreciate it. Yeah. You know? Oh, but, there's actually uh, more falconers than you might realize that keep hood collections of hoods made by different people. Yeah, you're talking to one. There you go. Okay. <laughs> well, when when I said I when I said other people, you know, think I have a problem, I I don't think it's a problem. I think it's practical. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm you're talking to one. I love collecting yeah. hoods. Yeah. yeah, and under glass they they keep. Mhm. Mm they they you know, they keep uh, you keep them out in the air and the bugs want to get to the feathers and you know, everything and and suddenly your beautiful hood could look like, you know, a rag doll. But um, and maybe that's maybe that's why Turk's head knots got so popular. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, when I first saw Turk's head knots on Dutch hoods, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But mm -hmm. yes, that, you know, that's the thing for for um, uh, the utility of it, mm -hmm. I guess. So I've asked a couple of, of other hood makers that I've gotten a, the good fortune to meet. Like I've asked this question to like guys like Steve Housel and uh, in the UK and some other guys I know that have that have made like a career out of making hoods and stuff. I mean, how many hoods do you think that you had to go through before you felt like, OK, this is something that I could I really feel. I know you said that you pretty much you you had to make equipment no matter what. I'm sure you were using hoods that you thought, <laughs> you know, yeah. because not, you didn't have a choice. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like how many hoods do you think you had to go through in retrospect before you really got these hoods that you felt like you could sell to other people or market or whatever and not have a second thought about it? Mm. Well, the time span was probably 10 years. <laughs> okay. Um, it's not what, 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 as far as the hood, so much of it is the hood pattern mm -hmm. and the type of leather you use. Got to be on, you know, on the right track with both of those things. And then you'll probably end up with a decent hood. And I'll, I'll tell you the, the hoods that I've used on my own birds 
If I do an over and under stitch on the seam, even on a Dutch hood, if it fits that bird and bird's you know comfortable in it, I'm happy. I I don't struggle with blind stitching uh, unless I need to make a blind stitch hood. Um, glued seams are wonderful, wonderful things. Use the right glue. It's got to be the right glue. But you make a hood. I've had hoods, still have hoods that are 20 years old that can be plopped right on a hawk uh, with glued seams. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I, I all that stuff is Greek to me. There's no way in hell I'll ever be able to probably consider myself even remotely capable of, of making them. And I don't know how many I would even have to make before, you know, I, I would feel competent enough to really even use them. But, but yeah, I mean, I know you were selling equipment and, and making hoods for the better part of that, that 10 year, you know, time span commercially and everything. But, but yeah, no, I was just curious because, you know, I've, I've heard different things from different guys, but I don't know how quickly some people take to it than others. Like how exactly, you know, exactly. You can have two guys spend 10 years making hoods and one guy is putting out masterpieces mm-hmm. and the other guy doesn't want to show you his hoods. <laughs> so it, that, that's a, that's a big part of it too. Mm-hmm. You know, the old all thumbs carpenter, you know, type mm-hmm. thing. Oh, that, that, that works too with, uh, with hood making. If you keep at it, you're going to end up with some perfectly, um, serviceable hoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in other words, the answer to the question is purely subjective, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, and, and what, what would you think you would still enjoy making to this day as opposed to other types of equipment? All of it. All of it. No preference. Uh, no, no problem making any of it. I got to tell you those hand stitch gloves I used to make that, that got pretty tedious. <laughs> um, but the rest of it, you know, I always made my own traps, tied my own dogazas. Um, you know, I just did it in the old sense of, well, you, there was a day when you couldn't get out the credit card. So that day just, you know, it just kept going that way. Mm-hmm. You, you had to do it yourself or, and the nice thing about it is, um, when you do it yourself, it ends up exactly the way you want it, or you have only yourself to blame. Now, like tying dogazas, um, you know, nets, mm-hmm. um, you could make them as wide as you want, as tall as you want, the size mesh that you want, the color thread you want, the thickness of the thread you want. And uh, you get exactly what you want as opposed to chopping up a misnet somewhere. So um, there, there's a real benefit to doing that. Uh, even, with, even with hoods, which I, I can tell you're a real hood guy, um, you know, you make a hood for, say, a, a peregrine tiersel. That might fit on... My peregrine tiersel, but is it going to fit on the peregrine tiersel of the guy out on the West Coast, you know? Sure. Um, or is he going to, you know, end up, I always would tell guys, put it in the hood drawer and, you know, save it for the next bird that fits if it doesn't fit them, because it's going to fit something. But um, 
there again, when you do it yourself, it's going to turn out the way you want it to, or you scrap it and start over, and that one turns out the way you want it to. It just goes like that. And speaking of Dogazes, um, I was a bander for about 60 years, too. And uh, banded down south, banded out west, banded up here in Pennsylvania. Um, another thing I had to give up, just got, you know, too old and decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the place I used to trap... In the fall in Pennsylvania, you know, we got beautiful ridges for this stuff, but I had to walk in a half a mile. Uh, thank goodness I could take a road up to the top and walk reasonably level, but you know that, and then a half mile out again when when you're done. But um, I did an awful lot of hawk trapping. I never, I never. Um, I never made it like, I never mixed falconry and banding. I didn't have to. I could go trap my own hawks for falconry. And on the banding operation, I put bands on them and send them down the ridge. Yeah. Um, but I did that for many, many years. And uh, that helps. That that um, helps in a lot of ways developing your your um raptor skills yeah i can imagine yeah i mean if you uh it's just like you're talking about with the hoods and the equipment i mean you make it you make a thousand hoods and eventually you're probably going to make a hood that you like you know <laughs> i mean I, that's just speculation because i don't ever plan on making one but um <laughs> but i mean i'm sure if you trap enough birds and and get to the point where you have enough practice with all the banding and, and all that stuff then it probably becomes pretty easy to identify other places that you can go to trap your own birds. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. It's just building up that knowledge base and uh, it just, it's, it's like a snowball going downhill. It mm -hmm. just builds on itself. So, yeah. Um, and, and it, it was all a lot of fun. I enjoyed it immensely. A very personal thing to me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I've never thought of falconry as a social sport. Never. And a lot of guys do. A lot of guys, you know, go to all these meets and if they go hawking, they got to have a guy or two go along with them. It's a, I was always a loner type. And uh, when things went right or things went wrong, I had myself to thank for it. And, uh, you know, just always worked around any obstacles just by myself. So mm -hmm. I didn't, um, I know there's been, you know, the old hawking club and a lot of, you know, organizations. Seems like every time enough falconers populate an area, they want to form a club. <laughs> you should, you, you probably haven't heard of any of the old, did you ever hear of the Kestrel Club? <laughs> no. Yeah. No. You like kestrels? There was yeah. a kestrel club in the 1950s. Yep. And uh, a whole bunch of, um, uh, you know, little organizations like that, if they could get enough, muster enough people together. And when they started um, NAFA, that was just amazing, the countrywide um, 
just amazing that there were enough falconers to, to uh, you know, instigate something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine how, like, going from and, and kind of raising yourself up in this in this community when there were no rules and regs or clubs or anything. And and like we kind of started off the conversation a little bit talking about and just seeing the progression, not only of, you know, how things have happened with the game populations, places to hunt, you know, dwindling. And, and then also at the same time, seeing all these clubs form, come and go or grow or change or morph into other stuff. And then that gets bigger and, no, I, mean, I can only imagine what things are like from someone like yourself, you know, perspective and seeing so many different things change and come and go over all these different decades. And, and I mean, what was it like though? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, we had, we didn't, we didn't have apprentice falconer and general falconer and mm-hmm. what are they called? Whatever the last is, the silly, silly named one. I didn't have all that. We had the booby system. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> and there were a few falconers with a small grapevine, you know, that just barely kept in touch. And they were the people that newcomers gravitated to. And if the falconer, oh, Corny McFadden was a great one. Um, there were a bunch of them. Uh, but uh, if they if they came up, if someone approached them, who looked like they might make a good falconer? They became that guy's booby. <laughs> okay. And it was an honor to be a booby. And you 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 didn't um you, you you didn't take any chances with that status because you had been accepted by, you know, an established falconer. And uh that's how I guess I know that didn't happen to me, but that was um I just did it on my own, but Generally speaking, uh, in the Northeast here, there, there was a booby system. <laughs> and uh, all the old guys, uh, you you look, I'm not going to name names because I don't want anybody. Well, sure. To, yeah, you don't have to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it's amazing who learned under who. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. How acetique, how, how the word got out on acetique, things like that. This was all on the booby system. Working or not working. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. I, who decided to name it the booby system? That's what I want to know. I have I, no idea. Yeah. It was in <laughs> how, place. How long even before you got into it that, was that in place? That was in place in the 1940s. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, man. No, it, you're right, though. It is, it's interesting just seeing all the evolutionary changes and how all this stuff is has happened, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's not something that I can put too much of a thought into. I just there's so many other things, modern things to, to deal with and worry about. You know, when it comes mm-hmm. to all this stuff. But I mean, kind of going back to though, when it was time, they, like, what point did did you realize that you're going to have to start taking a major step back? And and what was it like for you, kind of having to give a lot of things up once your knees and other things? You mean started? the end of the career? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been it's been uh, really in the last year. Mm-hmm. Like I say, if you if if you can't follow them on a chase, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Just can't do it. 
car hawking doesn't cut it. You even need your knees for, well, let's call it window hawking. You even <laughs> yeah. need your, you even need your knees for that. Yeah. So uh, I tried that with Merlins. I had Merlins for about twenty something years straight. Usually as a second bird to a peregrine or something. I had a wonderful time with Merlins, but still, even those, you know, little birds, you're out there running around like a crazy man. <laughs> and uh and I just, you know, just couldn't do it anymore. Um I had quit making equipment except for myself and a few friends that, you know, needed some equipment. So that, that was going away. But the big thing was after punishing my knees for 60 years, I, uh, I just, just can't do it out in the field anymore. Yeah. And it, it hurts to think about it. It, I mean, a day does not go by that I don't wish I, I wish I had a hawk. Yeah. A well, pair, maybe a peregrine. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, and that's why I was curious about yeah. it. I mean, some guys, whenever it's, they realize that they can't do it anymore. I mean, so there's a lot of guys that are fine with it. They're like, I've had a, a heck of a run, you know, to be honest, I I'm in the twilight and winding down and all this yeah. anyway. And it's like, how many more I've heard? Like, you know, some guys is like, well, I mean, how many more rabbits do I really need to take? And, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. catch and whatever. I yeah. mean, so, I mean, I, I was just curious about that. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I didn't know if you wish you could still do it or if you're fine with it or oh, whatever. I, I really wish I could do it, but I'm practical enough to stop, you know, when I should. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I essentially stopped cold turkey. I still have friends. I still read falconry books and i still get the publications and all that mm -hmm. um but uh yeah i just i just flat out quit yeah and and said it was a good run yeah a lot of fun it, it was just just worked out great i don't know i don't even know where it came from because nobody that i knew or any family member no one had any interest even close to falconry it just you know, got started with it and, and had a nice run. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, I, it was a, it was a heck of a run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, aside from the hood, of course, that you're going to make me after, you know, it's all yes. said and done too. I mean, yes. aside from that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that. Oh, what size hood is that supposed to be? Oh, uh, we'll talk about it okay. afterwards. Uh, oh, okay. No, we I won't, thought, we won't, right. we won't burden everybody else with, oh, okay. with the, the uh you know a few hoods that you're going to make me after this um <laughs> we're up to a few now <laughs> it, it, just it be be glad if it doesn't get into the double digits after this conversation so um but no i mean it sounds like you've you've had a, a great a great life and a great falconry career and um i mean you mentioned the archives too i mean i i know that you probably you know, like you said you mentioned you know having some hoods and stuff in there but i mean have you had a chance to make it out to the archives at all recently or have it i came close in the late 90s yeah my family was and i was on a road trip we were on a road trip mm -hmm. and we were going around to national parks mm -hmm. and unfortunately the last stop was going to be las vegas and the kids just kept saying when do we get to las vegas <laughs> and, and I tried to go from uh, Yellowstone to the archives. Mm -hmm. 
But by that time, I had forgotten just how big the West is. Yeah. That was a long haul, long ways out of the way, and we did not make it. And I kick myself for it, you know, all the time. But um, I knew Kent Carney, Mm -hmm. and uh, I knew some of the... Some of the fellows whose stuff is in, in the uh, museum. Yeah, well, they're so. they're still doing cool stuff out there. Yeah, I was just out there in April for their latest spring rendezvous, and mm-hmm. that's when you should. I mean, you should make a trip out there for the next spring rendezvous that they have every year. That that was a plan once too. Mm-hmm. We were going to do that. Who was I going to do that with? I can't quite remember, but uh, it didn't materialize. Um, and they have that. Um, that memorial out there mm-hmm. too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the wall of nice, remembrance. Yeah. Nice to see. Yeah, nice yeah. to see who's on there. Yeah, because uh, when you spend a lot of time uh, in falconry in the Northeast U.S., you learn a lot of stuff about a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That's that's really where it all began. Sure. In fact, you could call Pennsylvania. Southeast Pennsylvania, the the uh, the heart of it all. Mm-hmm. That that whole thing with Washington D.C. and and up into up into um, Northeast Jersey. Um, that that's where falconry got cranking. Yeah, and like I said, I I highly recommend if you can make it out there. I mean, it's a cool event and lots of lots of neat people that that make it each year and. Like I said, I was glad I got to go back in April and, and I, you know, I'm sure that for you and, and having things in there and it would be kind of nice and nostalgic in a way to, to see a lot of those, a lot of those people mm-hmm. that'd be out there, but we could talk for hours more about, you know, some of the more specific aspects of your very long falconry career. But before we do start wrapping things up, I do want to get, a, you know, a, a one good hunting story from and one more good, either hunting story or some you know, fun or even just learning experience that you had anything, you know, I know that 60 years is a, is a wide old to kind of, you know, draw from with a lot of those things, but what's one of the more memorable experiences that you, that you've had in falconry in all these years? Yeah. So many crazy things have happened. It's hard to narrow them down, but we got through them, <laughs> but I'll tell you, um, I had a prairie falcon, and um, we were duck hunting. And this was one of those daisy clipper prairie falcons. This bird didn't know anything about clouds or open sky or anything. It <laughs> stuck right close to the business at hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a two-lane road there, which I was on one side, and the bird went to the other side of it. And... Uh, the, the, the cars were clipping along pretty good on this two-lane road. It wasn't an old country road. It was, it was a, a hot two-lane highway. This is years ago, maybe in the sixties. But um, darned if that prairie falcon didn't come back and drop down and cross that road just as a car was coming along. <laughs> yeah. And the car hit the hawk. The headlight on the car shattered onto the road. 
the Mohammedan bells on the hawk were smashed flat, and the hawk came in and just landed by me. <laughs> Not bothered by it at all. I thought, there's a dead hawk. <laughs> Knocked the headlight out of the... Those prairie falcons are tough. <laughs> There's there's a reason why they're they're often cemented with the reputation of just being like the most powerful sledgehammer type, you know, like long wing. I mean, yeah, I mean the the peregrines are known for their finesse. The prairies are known just for their their pure blunt force trauma. So I mean, there's probably something to that. Mm. Yeah. Well, what else happened? I mean, was any was, was there anything else significant that happened in that little? I mean, so nothing was was wrong with the bird. Nothing, nothing. at all. And bird didn't know anything was wrong. The people just knew they didn't have a headlight anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to so ask. So we went then, on about our business. Yeah. Well, yeah. did you did you kind of like dive behind a bush or something so they didn't see you? And, Stood right there and watched the whole thing <laughs> from about twenty feet away. Yeah. Did you did you kind of wave them down and offer to pay for their headlight or? Nope. <laughs> nope. They kept going. They couldn't believe what had happened. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, that, that was really a a, a, a memorable time i'll tell you another one um i think it was when i trapped my first peregrine um in the in the 60s early 60s 63 or something like that i was using a pigeon harness and the funny thing is i had never heard of a pigeon harness or a pigeon vest as a matter of fact, the old guys, they didn't call it any of that. They called it a throwout because they didn't want anybody to know. You could take the nooses like you had on your ball trottery, put them on a leather jacket for a pigeon and trap pair. They didn't want people to know that. That was deep, deep secret. And uh, so I didn't know about it, but I knew about ball chantries, And I made my own. I said, why can't you just put these nooses on a pigeon? Which I did. I had a, a great design, a lot different than the old acetate design, but a great design. And uh, so I was uh, trying to trap my, I think it was my first peregrine, and um, threw that pigeon out and had seven peregrines come in <laughs> to get my pigeon. This was when everybody was, you know, silent spring and all that stuff was going on. And uh, they not only, I believe they were all first-year birds, and they were trying to knock each other off the pigeon so they could get on it. <laughs> so they had this little bar fight going on <laughs> at the side of the road. People are driving by, didn't see a thing. You know how that is. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, uh, and I'm waiting there, you know, sweating bullets. And I uh, did it. Did end up catching a bird out of that. But uh, seven peregrines after your pigeon at one time is a sight to behold. So. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to come out and say something like, "You not only did you you catch those seven, but then oh. there was another, you know, that came out of the woodwork and ended up catching, you know, a golden eagle on top of it, you know, whatever." And you know, was well, I actually <laughs> did see one peregrine and used my throw out. Mm -hmm. And then there was seven birds yeah, out of yeah. out of nowhere. They 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 saw the pigeon. I didn't see them, so that's how that went. Well, how mad would you have been if all seven of these birds came out of the woodwork and you wouldn't have caught any of them? 
that has happened <laughs> more often than I you know, would like to uh, admit. Mm -hmm. But um, trapping is a funny thing. It's a lot of fun. Um, but there's, there's an expertise to it. Uh, you, you, it's not just ABC. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. And so you, you have to develop your trapping skills. Mm -hmm. This was early on, um, you know, when a, a fellow who had trapped on acetate showed me his pigeon harness. I said, well, that's nothing like mine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, like I said, I know we could keep going for a very long time on a lot of this stuff, but I mean, there's so many different avenues that we could probably go down a rabbit hole on. But uh, before we do wrap things up, I do also want to get like one last, you know, piece of advice from you. I mean, especially someone like yourself who's had so many experiences in the sport and seen things, you know, from the infancy all the way to, to how things are now. I mean, what kind of piece of advice do you have for, for people that are either just now getting into the sport or been in it for a while? I would remind them that this is um, a sport between a man and a hawk. It's not really a social sport. It can be made into one, but it's between a man and a hawk. And it's more important for you to think like the hawk than it is for the hawk to, you know, know what's going on in your head. So, um, uh, I, that, that would be my advice is keep it one-on-one -on -one and, and deal with, you know, just the basic rudiments of falconry. They've never changed. They've, they've been the same for hundreds of years. Uh, so that, that, that's what I say. Don't, don't be, um, don't be caught up in all the, all the extras, all the glitz that can come with it. <laughs> right. Cause there's so much glitz glamor and, uh, and, <laughs> and popularity and fame and fortune that can come out of falconry. Right. <laughs> yeah. In some people's minds. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, some people, yeah, they're, they're going to always be their, their own biggest celebrity, I guess. But, uh, I know. Well, that's great. Well, Dale and I, I really appreciate you coming out and, and hanging out today. And, um, you know, it's been cool. You know, these are the kind of conversations that are always kind of neat to have whenever you meet someone like yourself for the first time, have a conversation like this and, and just, you know, it kind of sucks that for the, the time that, that is available, you're only really able to touch kind of like the, the tip of the iceberg you know, with all the different experiences and, and wealth of knowledge that I, that I know you probably have. I mean, you have to <laughs> doing all the things that you've, that you've done. But, um, anyway, I mean, it's been a real pleasure getting a chance to sit down and talk to you. And, uh, and I, like I said, I appreciate you coming out and, and doing this. I hope it's been, you know, fun for you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoyed it immensely. Yep. Yeah. Good. I'm yeah. glad. It's great. Glad well, I came. Yeah. And, um, yeah, don't forget we we have the hood discussion to have. Funny it, you brought that up again. Yeah, I mean it's you know I mean it's just a minor detail. We'll yeah. we'll, we'll hash it out here in a minute. But but yeah, and, and let me know if you ever do decide to um you know to go out to the rendezvous. I mean I, I'm kind of probably plan to make it either a annual or, or semi annual Great. thing. You know heading Wonderful. out there and stuff too. I I like you know seeing what they've what they've been doing and um 
you know, those, those guys out there and, and John especially has been doing a great job and, and, um, digitizing and making what they have there available for everyone, you know, to see. So I think you'd be really impressed and, mm-hmm. and, uh, would have a good time sure checking it out. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, um, I guess Seth is supposed to have this amazing barbecue available soon. We're going to have to, you know, get something to eat and, uh, I Probably. hope he gives me something to eat. Have another beer. Well, it was from what I heard, it was your fault last time that you just forgot to oh, eat. Oh, is that something. the way you heard it? Well, that's no. the, you admitted to it later, you know. But all Oops. right, yeah. Well, you know, we we all aren't aren't perfect. I guess we're forgetful. But anyway, all right. But well, like I said, thank you again, and uh, okay, hopefully we'll do you. this again soon. 